God podcast, where truth occasionally makes an appearance amidst all the chaos here. This week's guest is the marvelous Maggie Rowe, and she is a real gem. She's a Los Angeles-based writer who has written for such shows as Arrested Development, and also one of my very favorites, the wildly underrated Netflix series Flaked. Maggie's also a screenwriter, a producer, an actress, and an author who has been on this podcast before after the publication of her first book, Sin Bravely. And Maggie now makes her triumphal return to the Thinking God podcast to talk about her latest book, Easy Street, A Story of Redemption from Myself. And she is, as always, delightful, warm, and entertaining. And I'm really excited to have you back. It's been like four years since we talked, I think. Yes, yes. A lot going on. A lot going on. (laughs) Sound like you've been pretty busy in those past four years. I have been very busy. Um, (laughs) I even still feel busy. I've... I, I've noticed of late that I, I feel like I'm almost addicted to speediness. You know, this feeling of sure. go, 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 busy, busy, busy. Um, So, I, yes, I, I sort of feel like the last five years I've been a speediness addict. <laughs> yes, I, I, can, I find it difficult to get off the train. I really do. I mean, it's <laughs> need to take days off, and I just, when I do, I'm like, okay, here are the things I need to do while I'm thinking about them on my days <laughs> when I'm trying to take a day off. But um, anyway, there's so many roads I want to walk down today, it's hard to know where to start. But let's just start with your latest book. I, I read a lot of books. I probably knock out two or three books a week. And I'm not sure I've read anything quite like this book. Um, what gave you the courage and drove you to write something so intensely personal? Well, you know, I for years, uh, for 20 years uh, before the pandemic shut us down, I did a comedic uh, spoken word show, uh, basically personal you know, that's a, I always struggle to figure out how to best describe it. Basically, the show is called Sit and Spin, and it was personal comedic essays. And the idea was being the most brutally honest as you could be about your own experience with yourself as the butt of the joke, you know, instead right. of traditional stuff. Anyway, so... And some of those are on YouTube if people want to watch them, too, by the way. I just... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. They've got a few on YouTube. Um, uh, but so I always told people that we're writing pieces, and it was the advice that I gave myself, is whatever was going on in your life right now, what whatever was the stickiest wicket, you know, whatever was most uh, uh, troubling you or you were most grappling with, write about that. And then if you're going to talk about past events, great, but do them through the filter of what's going on now. So... I uh, I can go into the subject of the book, but uh, basically the stories that are in the book I had done as pieces in Sit and Spin for many years um, uh, because the uh, the woman in my book uh, was a big part of my life. So uh, so the book was kind of a gathering of a bunch of material and then figuring out how to put it into a form. Uh, it also deals with my OCD, my resurgence of my OCD, and that was another thing that I had talked about on stage in Sit and Spend Pieces. And so those two subjects, my relationship with this woman and my uh, psychological struggles, came together. It just happenstance that they kind of climax. Uh, within the same six months, these two different tracks of mine. So I actually was writing two different types of pieces. Like, they weren't the same. Um, I was going to say, writing is sort of a lonely, thankless task anyway. I don't think a lot of people understand the scope of that. 
Yes, and I always felt, and I'm going to start since then up again, but I always felt so fortunate to have it because it was people coming together and not only sharing their writing that you do personally, but writing about their life and things that they don't normally talk about and, you know, stand up often. I mean, this is certainly changing, but it, it is often making fun of others. Uh, and this was the opposite. So it, it was a real community uh, of writers that was pretty special. But putting it into uh, book form was another writing. challenge entirely, right? Pulling it into a book form. Ooh. Totally. Totally. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it actually the the kind of like aha moment for me uh, of like, oh, I see how this could be a book uh, was I was talking to a friend of mine about what be, a scene that became the climax of the book, uh, which was which is a struggle between me and Joanna. Uh, Joanna is a 55-year-old neurodiverse woman that I became the legal representative of through a number of different circumstances. Um, uh, what was I just saying about Joanna? Well, we're we're going to get to that. No, we're, we're just talking about... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That you yeah, pull yeah. it into... Anyway. Um, you you kind of start the book off, and I, it was it, with a loud declaration that you're not a nice person. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. not content, not grateful. You're actually envious of Miles Davis and Big Bird. I don't think those two have ever been in, <laughs> in the same on the same page before. <laughs> but uh, yes, oh, they have it so sweet, so sweet. Well, it, <laughs> except for it, the it, except for the the uncomfortable suit that caused him to pass out often, and the drug addiction that Miles eventually <laughs> wasted away with. Yes, oh, but his sweet moments, so sweet moments. <laughs> <laughs> but you t- you took it all the way down to just people you knew locally, your friend who was a mother and an author, and other people who just seemed to sail along, sort of the easy to drift through the discontentment that everybody else seems happier except for you. Um, totally. But- it's totally. Ha- and, you know, I feel like envy of the seven sins, you know, envy is the one that people don't want to talk about. You know, like people, you know, lust get some good press anger, pride, you know, there's righteous anger, but envy, you know, that green little monster, you know, nobody really wants to talk about, including me. Well, and and it's the old, uh, you know, from, I think the song was written in the 30s originally, the L.A., it's the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, the joy that you can find here, you can borrow, but you cannot keep it long, that kind of thing. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very, it's it's very true. I mean, I do feel, uh, you know, the, the town runs on hope for better and worse. Um, uh, but talking about the kind of running and the addiction to speediness, um, you know, I, I, I definitely feel it here. And, you know, the looking at who has what and whose career is better and, the, you know, the markers and the comparisons. Uh, my husband has a line that I love, which is about... Uh, Variety, the trade magazine, you know, where you find mm-hmm. out what, what, yeah, and of course, and he says, uh, uh, 10 minutes to read it, two hours to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always heard that it's, uh, it, it's fueled on, on, uh, holding out hope, and then the other, the other 50% is, uh, selling large sledgehammers to smash that hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the, and I, you know, one thing I've, I've thought about being in the biz- business 
is uh, that it's largely about hope management and, uh, you know, keeping your hopes high enough that, you know, that that's a fuel and a drive and a motivation, but uh, not so connected to circumstances that you're not thrown willy-nilly, you know, it's a, it's kind of an art. And I, I bet the people, I'm just guessing this right now, I bet the people that really survive in the business have some sort of skill, you know, like long-term people right. have some sort of skill and, you know, that kind of dexterity. Of, There's you know, a real tribute to that in um, the new Ron Howard book about his dad, about how his dad continued ah, a career and watching that. Tribute. I highly recommend that, you know, somebody who was auditioning up until almost the very end and getting parts and, you know, never quite got where he wanted to, but he never gave up. Like you're talking about working hard and writing and auditioning and Clint, but he's just talking about Rance Howard and his life and how influential that was. uh, Well, you know, what's crazy is my husband and I, uh, we worked on Arrested Development, which was the last thing Rance Howard did. Oh yeah. So we wrote his last, working scene. Wow. Um, now I'm I impressed. My husband. Yeah, I believe it was my, I'm pretty darn sure it was my husband's idea to bring him in uh, for that, uh, to to do, well, you know, we did the whole run about Ron Howard. Yeah, Ron so, did the narrations uh, thing, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, then we added in. Uh, but my, my husband had been a big fan of it. But anyway, he's great. He, he was great. And yeah, working, I think maybe that was I'm not sure, but maybe six months before he passed, and he was just fantastic, just right. fantastic. Um, yeah, that is. I've got to read that book now. Well, as much as I'd love to call you and talk about Rance Howard, uh, the the other thing you <laughs> talked about was you know all, on that list of people you envied was you were talking about uh, those who were interviewed on NPR, which you recently were. Uh, did they tell you to whisper while you were on there? I still can't understand why I have to turn my radio up to listen to NPR. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, you know, I actually try. It's so funny. So one of the, I specifically envy this woman, Krista Tippett, right. <laughs> who hosts the podcast on being. Um, and I really do. Every time I hear her, I'm like, Dad, that's a great job. I'm like, I could do that. <laughs> I could totally. Why did she? What route did she take? Ah. <laughs> and then she asked, I don't have kids. I, you know, it, it is a choice, but it's still something. So I have this whole thing built up in my, my head about Krista Tippett. Anyway, I recently sent her um, a box of NB cupcakes. <laughs> could you please have me on your show so we can talk about um, uh, envy and how I envy you? <laughs> my little. But you were on NPR recently, anyway. Wasn't with Krista? It was somebody. Yeah. Uh, yes. 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 With Scott Simon. Yes, right. Yes, yes, right. Yes. Uh, you, you know, you, you kind of paint a lot of these feelings of discontent with smiles, but you know, you get into it early in the book that you have that added burden of suffering from purely obsessional OCD. And that's not particularly funny. Remind people what this lesser-known form of OCD does. So they call it pure O sometimes, which makes it sound very elegant and, uh, (laughs) you know, like, oh, it's so pure. (laughs) None of the the trappings for me. Like an Uh, oxygen bar, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, uh, basically it's uh, it's the obsessions without the corresponding physical compulsions. Uh, so it's essentially intrusive thought, but it, you know, it's hard to explain. It's slightly different than 
you know, somebody could say that they worry about something, they perseverate, they go over and over. It's not quite the same thing. There are elements that are similar, but it's, it's some form of looping where there's a feedback mechanism wherein trying not to think the thought causes the thought to come back 20-fold. And it's that looping system that's just the nasty that's the nasty little beast, um, because I have a tendency to perseverate and worry about the future, and how, you know, just ruminate, I, rumination know. kind of stuff. You're rumination. talking about yeah. yeah, yeah, I can do that. But that seems to me, and I, I know other people have different degrees of that beast, but to me, that is is somewhat manageable. It's when it gets into this looping um, phenomenon uh, that it's it, it's. Just, it's like a Chinese finger trap, and uh, trying to get out of it is <laughs> is a life's work for me. <laughs> and yours has its roots, as we talked about in your first book, in your religious background and a deeply planted fear yeah. of hell. Yes, yeah, it was. So I had these looping thoughts from a very, you know, and I, you know, I'm figuring out, and you know, I'm I'm painting in retrospect how I believe this all came be, you know, I recognize there could be elements, but as I see it, basically what happened was um, I was told to believe something and feel something that I was unable to, and I created this kind of war within myself, and specifically, I had a overwhelming fear of hell, and I learned that there was one sin that God could not forgive, and that was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And when you ask, well, what is that? <laughs> right. I want to do that. Um, and it was like, well, nobody knows, but don't do it. And right. I was like, ah! And so this, I, this phenomenon took root, which is basically I was like, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then or you're I going said to hell. that to yeah. myself. Yeah, when when I gave myself that prohibition, it created, you know, like they sometimes call it the imp of the mind, but this kind of automatic book where I would say the most awful things in my head and then sometimes just blaspheme, just the word itself. Just like, don't say it, and then I would say it. Um, and Do you remember how early that, that kicked in? I mean, do you, do you have the earliest memories of when somebody warned so you about hell? Or? Super early, and I, yes. Um, I was five. I was five. It really started right, right after I accepted Jesus. The, the, you know, the phrase we used, accepted Jesus as my personal savior. Mm-hmm. As soon as it, as soon as I did, as soon as I did, I went. Did I do it right? Was that it? Was that? I don't. I don't feel anything. And. And then I, I just remember I started to feel guilty about things. Like, it just, it, it took root super early. Wow. And then you start worrying that if you're worrying, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and you're back to another loop. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, the big, oh, there were these verses that were just horrible but um, to me, which, you know, one was the, uh, the Holy Spirit will assure you of your salvation. Right. So, and the idea was, well, if you're not assured, and then I had one youth pastor that did the most horrible thing that I still have to let go of, uh, but basically I confided in him and said, you know, I'm so scared 
that, you know, I'm going to have, like, did I do it right? And did it, did it take? And, you know, I've done it so many times and I've done all the variations and I've tried to be sincere. And his answer was, if you're worrying about it, no, it didn't take. And it was like, which you know how uh, miserable that guy must have been you know it's uh it, it, it uh, and we won't turn this into a, a bible study on the holy spirit but the the thing that in the christian tradition the idea of the holy spirit the the, the you're talking about the evidences of it are peace patience kindness gentleness self-control um, mercy yeah. and love i mean those are the things that those are the the uh the evidence they're not uh, your stalwart faith in something or belief in something uh, is it, it yeah and people have yeah. forgotten that and those things are, are run right. throughout every spiritual tradition you could drop us anywhere yeah. on any planet in the universe probably and start talking about peace patience kindness love gentleness and you're gonna be yeah yeah we that's those are our our things too you know yes you don't have the thing that just messed with my mind was essentially you're required to assent to a series of propositions, you know, uh, a belief about a historical event and whether or not that happened, a belief about your own original, and even the idea of original, like trying to feel guilt before you naturally feel it. Right. It's a real mind but, you know, anyway. It's, well, they, they, the the concept of original sin didn't even pop up till like a thousand years into the whole thing. So right. it's, it's, it's one of these deals that right. people use for control and um, uh, is really unfortunate. And again, I'll remind people to check out your first book, Sin Bravely. You have a lot of details about that in there. And um, it uh, one of the things in, that you talk about in that book, and you mentioned this book too, was that uh, you, your story about an evangelical psych ward, which would actually be hilarious if it were not a true event. Maybe maybe there's a seed of a project for you there, an evangelical psych ward sitcom. <laughs> I'm. Uh, would you believe I had a I had a pilot in development with Showtime. Oh, you should uh, have. It's uh, awesome. It's such uh, a great idea. Very very yeah. Uh, yeah, basically, it was a it was a evangelical. Uh, uh, it, it was a psychological, uh, basically a psychological rehab program. So nothing scary it, uh, except for psychologically scary. The right. thing that showed there was going to be a problem, that there was like a real like red flag, was the slogan for the institution was psychiatry where the Bible comes first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it was like uh, 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 after my mental health. <laughs> I was gonna say if I'm if I'm gonna read that, can I have my meds first? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! But it was exactly where I needed to be uh, because if I had gone to a secular facility, they would have said health's not real. Get over it, and I would have gone uh, like I needed it to be within the system. Um, so right. ultimately, I'm in incredibly grateful to that place right and you got some like you said you got some measure of help there and some meds and that you know by the but then at 25 when you really had sort of at least the belief system of hell was gone it reemerged as a monster again right it reemerged uh again through a weird weird series of circumstances and the looping came back it's just, it, it, I still find it slightly embarrassing to say, of all the things I talk about that one would think would be embarrassing, this one always embarrasses me. The word that I started 
I started repeating a word in my head, um, uh, which was blast off. Yeah, you were taking blaspheme and turned it into blast off, which I think is is quite amazing, actually, not embarrassing. It's kind of an amazing. <laughs> I think it it's the only reason that I can think that it was that word. It's just so close enough, but it really was. And it sounds like such an innocent thing. It sounds like oh, and I remember you know visiting various various psychiatrists and them being like, yeah, it's like an earworm. So you repeat a word in your head, people get songs stuck in your head. And it's like, well, it's not that bad, so that's okay. So you're saying a word, you know. Uh, you're not thinking about killing anyone, nobody's hurt, you know. And it was sometimes difficult or frustrating for me to kind of communicate. It is so deeply troubling it, because it feels like an assault on oneself. Um, that's what's just the killer. It, it just felt, yeah. And you, you mentioned this, some of that first book, and in this book, you, in more detail, something you just said kind of triggered me, that how difficult it is to, no matter what your resources or what your station is, to find mental health professionals who are really helpful. Oh, my God. Oh my God. I really do feel like that it really is like dating. And, like, it's like you need, I mean, you need money to date. You need insurance. I mean, date in the... I mean, in the sense, like, you can't just go to one therapist. It seems like the odds of the first person you find, even through all the recommendations, the odds of that being a fit, it's like your friend setting you up with, you know, their friend from accounting. Yeah, he may be a great, Joel may be great, but the odds of me clicking with Joel, you know, so to find the right therapist, and I am so lucky and have been my whole life ever since I went to that facility I had the resources to go there right that wasn't you know um, so ever since then I have I have had every upper I have never said I can't do this because of money ever which is huge it is um, a huge because that's a problem a lot of people face that are struggling I mean obviously oh oh and like uh, you know the the woman that I uh, Joanna that I right. become the legal guardian of. She's in a wildly different situation. Although she did, you know, we, you know, we, we did manage to get, sure. you know, she, she does have health care. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And I, so I went through so many therapists and not even, you know, I didn't even write about half of them in the book. Like That's what I was going to ask you. Like, Were there any that you didn't write about that you went back and forth about or some you just thought, nah, they'll sue me or something? <laughs> Uh, no, you know what it was is I just had uh, I just had way too much material. It was, it was my editor was like hey, we can't go through every single therapist right. that you went through. Well, it strikes it's me so a lot of them is not much different than the Bible comes first. Their program was in front of your mental health. A lot of them you came to it seemed like. Yes, yes, in a couple of different ways. Yes, in you know it's interesting that you say that. Yes, I would say in. I can think, as I'm talking about it, four of them. Yes, at least. Yes. That's, that's frightening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the, ah, the, and I, it's a human tendency, I'm sure I would do it too, but like that your product becomes more important than the person in front of you. And if the person in front of you isn't, isn't helping you develop your product, or it doesn't go, you know, yeah, yeah. But, I had, yeah. They want to measure your success, their success by their success with you, 
without considering yeah. who you are and what you need. That's the scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. Think about what power, you know, that's what was hard for me, you know, is the power that therapists hold or psychiatrists, psychologists hold, especially when you're in such a vulnerable position, you know, like there, there's one thing, it was such a small bit of withholding. It really was not a huge deal, but it cut me. And it, it was just, I was talking to one therapist and he was like, this is going to be the perfect book for you. And he takes it off his bookshelf and I look at it. And just in that moment, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go home and read this tonight. And I'm going to, I'm going to work on it. And I'm going to do all these techniques and I'm going to be so much better. And I just wanted to like, just start bawling in his office because I was so happy to have this book in my hand. And then uh, I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. And he was like, oh, that's my copy. <laughs> and yeah. and he was like, it's on Amazon. Uh, and, and I was just like, what? <laughs> but it, in a normal situation, I would have been like, nah, that's rude. Fine, you know. Uh, but in those vulnerable situations. Well, at least you shamed like, him into letting you borrow it, though. That was a good. I did. I did. <laughs> I did. I was like, I think you should give this to me. Well, the one that the, the one that infuriated me was the one who told you all of the other successes they'd had in one or two sessions with all these extreme veterans with PTSD and all this stuff. Oh, so, so God. it's like you came in here. I've not even been here an hour, and you're already telling me what's wrong with me. Why I'm not going to get better because I'm not doing what you say. It's just the most They're bizarre. Not doing what I said. And, and the idea, you know, like the, uh, the the hierarchy of mental health crises. You know, I, I totally felt like oh little girl with your little words going through your head i've worked with and not not to be like of course and my that trauma i'm not dealing with that trauma but the idea of comparing one patient to another patient and going eh, you know you haven't been through it <laughs> what <laughs> well, I, well i have it, it, it almost is like a, a person running 12-step groups who doesn't suffer from the addiction that you know they may have some really good yeah. information, and they've talked to people, and, and some of them are very compassionate. There's some people who actually can pull that off some, but it generally it's not the same as, as having that understanding. Um, one of the things you wrote that you, toward the end of the book, you're talking about you've had less struggles over the last 15 years, and that one of the keys to finding that path was shifting your focus from your own happiness and helping others. Is that a fair summary? It really is. And here's the thing that I've like kind of switched um, is the like I feel and it wasn't necessarily what I was taught but it was how I received it was that you helped others because you should and because you would be rewarded for it those two things and I really think it proceeded in my life under that assumption that that's what helping others you should and it'll be but here's the thing, it's such a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's not a solely Buddhist idea, but it's how I come to the idea, is that you are the beneficiary of your own actions in the sense that if you are helping somebody else, and even that phrasing I don't like because it, it's got that, that ring to it from my childhood, but like extending yourself is, is, is just self-preservation for your own 
for your own happiness. I, I talk about, I kind of like this metaphor of like other people and other projects, you know, things that are bigger than yourself are, are other ships that you're sending out into the sea. <laughs> and if you, the project of you, if the project of Maggie Rowe is my only ship, I'm in bad shape <laughs> because when storms hit that ship, you know, there's nothing else. And one thing that I've really struggled with, and, and I think I've, I think it's led me to some degree of wisdom, is not having children. Uh, I feel like children are these natural other ships that pull you out of yourself. They're not going to live if you don't feed them and keep them away from the stove. So just by virtue of necessity, you're pulled out of yourself. Um, but if you're in my situation where nothing, you know, certainly, you know, I have friends and my husband, but, but there's not that same diet pull out of yourself that you, boy, you've got to create them, <laughs> you know, um, and, and not in a should way, but just for your own flourishing. And I'm not going to remember the Greek word, but you know, it's the, it's the ancient Greek word that Plato and Aristotle used for flourishing Unamia or mm -hmm. something, but like I feel like that's the idea is that helping others is for your own flourishing, and at least that it's a better way for me to, you know, how I think of it and the language that I use really affects really affects my life and how I think about. It. So so that's the way I, I like to think of it is um, you know is is finding a way to flourish through extension of myself. I heard somebody say that nothing interesting ever came out of should, ought to, supposed to. Oh, and I yeah. like that approach because it, it does run through. It's not just a, I mean, it's an American thing pretty strongly, but it runs through most faith traditions somewhere or the other, whether it's you're not doing the right things on the path to enlightenment, you're not doing the right things to avoid this or hell or whatever, you know. It's, it's what you ought yeah. to do these things. I, I remind, it reminded me of the Walt Whitman line. He said, the gift is to the giver and it comes back most to him. It cannot fail. Which, ah, beautiful. That's exactly, I mean, and, and everybody, if you can get them calmed down enough, when even people I've known that are pretty extreme with some faith tradition, and just say, have you ever done something for someone just because you wanted to and you knew they couldn't pay you back and it was just something you really wanted to do and you did it and you walked away thinking, there's something resonating in my inner being because I did that, you know. I, I didn't do it because yeah. I felt like I ought to or wanted or could they could help me or yeah. anything else. But just I just wanted to do that. And there's a resonance there with the divine that I don't think shows up anywhere else. Ah, well said. Well said. Yes. I feel like if if I could eliminate one word from the English language that you if you wanted to say it, you'd have to fumble around a bit. It wouldn't come so easily. Right. But he should. Like, let's just get rid of it. You can express the concept, but it shouldn't come that easily. <laughs> I think, given your background, too, one of the things I meant to mention a minute ago, one of the most terrifying things in the book, and it really was, was worthy of a, of a uh, Stephen King passage, was where you were talking about sitting in the same chair your grandmother sat in when she was wasting away, and you realized you'd been there as a child. Um, it... Uh, you know that that was that was just really heart wrenching, Maggie. When I read that, uh, um, when did when did you kind of put that together? That when you realized that. 
It was so. It was a. It was a rocking chair right. that my uh, yeah that my my grandmother had. She, she had had uh, electroshock therapy, and, and she was in my mind this kind of cautionary tale. Uh, and she had been a rebel. Uh, her father was a preacher, and she was a rebel. And so, in my young mind, I kind of put it together what would happen. Um, uh, but anyway, I <laughs> I kind of put the together that the chair that I rocked in was the chair that she ended up rocking in when it sounds like a crazy thing to do but it was when I smoked pot with my husband in the in the midst of my psychological crisis why would anybody smoke pot it was a terrible decision it was just like I want something to alter my mind and um and, and it just altered my mind in a horrifying way horrifying um that I was absolutely convinced that uh, I was going to be lo- that my mind would never function again that I'd never be able to locate the feeling of I that I wouldn't be able to just put together anything I was terrified but all these images kind of came flooding through my mind and, and one of them was uh, that rocking chair and me rocking together and you know I had other memories that came up of uh, not even memories of myself but reading in college that um, uh, Sid Barrett, the uh, uh, guitarist for Pink Floyd, who had a psychiatric break, you know, I worried that, you know, it happened one night to him. And I hadn't thought about that in years. But then that came up in my head. I was like, oh, 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 and he kept playing that note, you know, and it all kind of mushed together. Um, Yeah, it was bad. It was bad. (laughs) Um, it it um it brought i made me start thinking about having read both your books and we talked before i don't think we actually talked about at what point given your background and all those things um did you begin to suspect there might be healthier spiritual practice out there that's not hell-bent on destruction or uh, were, were spiritual things on your radar when you moved to la absolutely absolutely and little by little by little so first of all the craziest thing that I did and I did it like with such force like I did it like a calling and it was such a weirdo thing to do that even when I look back now I'm like what possessed me but um after I graduated from college I moved into a Hindu ashram uh in outside of Chicago near my home called the Himalayan Institute and uh I studied Hinduism uh meditation yoga rather very intensely um, for five months and absolutely changed my life, absolutely my introduction to meditation and my first connection with what I felt was real spirituality. Um, and I'll tell you like one moment that I, that was so crazy in it, it was a blasphemous moment in, in my mind, like it was charged with that feeling but it was so celebratory. So, uh, so I was living at the Himalayan Institute. I was 21. There was, the, there was a thing every Friday night. Uh, it was kirtan, kirtan chanting, which is a call and response uh, Hindu, uh, you know, uh, basically saying the names of the different gods, a meditative celebratory type practice that kind of gets really grooving sometimes with a harmonium and a sitar, you, you would kind of recognize it. But the most famous one of Kirtan is, is Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Um, 
And in my mind growing up, when I heard that, I was like, oh, the devil. You know, like you'd hear it or you'd see the Hare Krishnas and it was like, oh, I should witness to them. They don't know. They don't know. Um, and uh, so Friday night, we're doing this kirtan thing and I'm with these people that are so wonderful and I'm learning meditation and I'm healing my mind from this trauma and I feel like actual love and community and people that are seekers and trying to connect to the divine and you know even when they use the word divine it doesn't strike chills up my spine and there's no fear you know it was like and then this woman who I was really good friends with who was just wonderful started the harmoniums and then she she went Hare Krishna and everybody started singing Hare Krishna and I started singing too and it felt it felt blasphemous and liberating um, <laughs> um, in a way uh, and I, I would say that was kind of the start of it living there and then since then well, did that thrill um, your parents when you moved into an ashram after college <laughs> well you know they were so good and I should you know what I'm going to call them tonight and tell them how kind and open-hearted they were because that it wasn't just a yoga place it was a hindu place i mean it was they were so kind they were so christian they were like if this is what you need and um they were great that's so unusual too that really is unusual oh oh yeah well, let's, yeah. let's jump into the story of the book a little more about how you and Handsome Jim took this road mm-hmm. together. Um, uh, it, uh, there's a lot of things, like you, you mentioned in the story before we start talking about Joanna and her mom, that um, I thought were interesting. You're, the night you were out walking and wandered into a small charismatic mm-hmm. church that didn't speak your language was really a nice touch. Um, and uh, I really liked the, the story of you talking about your friend who you would, your Buddhist friend who you'd worked with who was uh, sliding into dementia. Those were really touching parts of the book, I thought. Thank you. I had, yeah, I had a really, um, and, and it was, it, it you know, there, it, I had had alcohol and I was on medication. So it was, it, it is a blur, you know, it, I don't know why I felt the need to apologize. Boy, that's a, that is a guilt thing that was built in. Boy, I did it right now in real time. I just felt like I needed to apologize or explain <laughs> for the extreme experience that I had. I know I was drunk. I know I was drunk. I know I... <laughs> right. Um, we always want to put modifiers in front of everything. It was really good, but right. I was here and right. I did this and right. maybe... Right. I, that's crazy that I just did that. Basically, I had a very powerful experience. I had been walking uh, uh, around. I had, had really in a difficult time. I was on several different medications, and I just, I just walked outside, and I was in this mist. It was really dreamlike. Um, it just felt like I was in this altered universe, and I saw this woman that just caught my interest like caught my fancy like I don't know what like it felt like a dream I just kind of like followed her around and then she went into this um, uh, Latinx uh, 
charismatic Pentecostal church that I had, you know, I've lived here for 20 years, and the church has been here since I was here. I've been by it a million times. It's a little storefront church, and it always seems like a great big party. And on that night, I just went in, and it was so warm and so accepting. And, you know, I felt like everyone was going to be like, oh, white lady wanders in here. She's not part of this congregation. Who is she? And I was greeted with such, like, it totally felt like, hey, you came. <laughs> Great news. <laughs> um, uh, and, and it was such a, it, it was a really moving moment. And I actually went up and did the kind of the healing, thing. you know, everyone sure. was going up and doing things. And, um, it was actually really good. I ended up getting sick and uh, needed to leave, but uh, it was it, it was nice to have it within a church. And like talk about like language didn't matter, you know. There right. weren't these intricate. It was just people singing and being kind to each other. And here was this clearly distressed lady. <laughs> you know, my hoodie was all soaked and wet. You know, <laughs> from the you know it was all misty out and why is she here um yeah it was like it was really really good christian spirit i thought it was interesting you you it was it was almost a dream sequence even as you wrote it but that you you got in and you experienced what you needed to experience and you're saying you started feeling sick and you left but you you, you got in you you experienced something and you left and it was sort of a nice it, it really a well-rounded story all the way around because if you'd stuck around a while it would have gotten awkward at some point <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's true, that's true. It and gave I, me an exit. And i got to be um, honest, what, reading this book, uh, I, I actually was worried for you when you were talking about the the psychotropics and the wine. That, that I was concerned for you. <laughs> so, yes, 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 terrible, terrible decision, <laughs> terrible decision. <laughs> How about your friend who, um, who was, the Buddhist friend who you'd known before and you know, been close to and was going through dementia. How, how, first of all, how, is he still around or? Well, you know what was the most wonderful experience? Yes, he is still around. Um, the most wonderful experience I had um, is uh, I went, I read him, I read him that whole passage uh, about him, word for word. And then I, and I just cried. I just cried through the whole thing when I read it to him and I felt he was really pleased and um, he said he, he afterwards he said can you send that to me so it made me feel like it was something that he valued and uh, uh, it was a really I, I felt very grateful to be able to read that out loud to him that's really cool. It can be such a challenge. It's so hard to find those glimpses of truth in a world of so many spiritual barkers out there. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, um, uh, and that's why I wanted to mention before we went too much further that at one point you started a religion. But we'll talk about that. But, you know, it's, it's still nothing new under the sun category. You can watch people from Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar to Oprah and Tony Robbins, and they're all sort of building kingdoms that pander to people with influence or wealth or who are just looking to find a shortcut to join that ruling class. And, um, ah, yes. So, and I think class. that, that yeah. brings us to the, the religion you started that's mentioned on your website. 
Yeah, so I had the best time doing this. So it was about eight years ago, and it started, I, I, I was producing a, a comedy variety show. And I, there was a sketch that I did that involved, um, that had videos. And basically, I did a parody of prosperity theologies. It was when the secret was really big. Right. And what the bleep do we know? And you have some big-name you know, people in your trailers there, too. I mean, those are some... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I ended up, that was from, yeah, that's another topic. It was, it was a lot of people that did Hell How, uh, another project that I did. But uh, basically, I did this, um, I did this parody, and um, uh, then I got a little bit of funding. That's an odd kind of story. But basically, I had a little bit of money to do an experiment where I experimented to see if I could create a parody of a religion and see if people would believe it. Um, and so it was really fun. It created tons of videos. We had 21 tenants, and they were all things that, you know, would sound wonderful but were actually horrible. We had sacred ignorance, uh, that which you don't see doesn't exist. You know, if you ever find yourself troubled by others suffering, you practice, you know, the art of sacred ignorance and uh, or, or sky mall shopping. The universe is your sky mall catalog. Get shopping. Um, uh, our uh, slogan was, have you ever wanted something that you did not have? <laughs> and people... We, you know, we tried to kind of ride the line, and, and many people really did go, yes, yes, I have wanted something that I did not have. <laughs> yes. And exactly. It was, uh, the pyramid and the circle were the two. That was the... Yes, it's the sacred symbol of the pyramid within the sphere. Right, so the you sphere. ascend the pyramid to go into the sphere. Did anybody <laughs> think it was, I mean, you said people were buying into it? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there were, uh, there was, we, you know, there was one of the YouTube videos that went very viral, and there were all these people that like were like, "Count me in. This sounds awesome. Sacred ignorance all the way." <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there were a, a couple of evangelicals that were like, "This is false prophecy." <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, but it was a it was a fun it was a fun experiment, and, and then I did a film where uh, it was called Bright Day, an expose of Hollywood's fastest growing new religion, and it was basically a, a takedown of the religion that I had created. <laughs> well, you just destroyed your own merch kingdom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless you watch to the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't seen that film yet. I haven't. I've watched a lot of the clips. No, you, you don't need to. You don't need to. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's it. It's a fun film. Uh, moving back, uh, I think that you, as you, you wrote the book, you sort of negated the whole declaration that you're not a nice person as the book goes on because what goes on in this book is, you know, what the Christ, in the Christian tradition we call a full-scale act of service um, to the least of these, which is really a phrase that just means those who have no power, influence, ability to repay or anything. But you and your husband's kindness to Joanna and her mother, Sonny, and taking the ball and running with it, it's pretty rare, Maggie. And I, I think you recognize this. I don't know how your friends responded to you, but I think it's unusual. 
it's un- it's an unusual situation that I got myself into. And the thing that I do try to be, I try to be honest about it in the book and honest about it when I was writing it, is that, yes, I did do, the act itself is a fair, it absolutely helped uh, Joanna. And she's doing very, very well. Actually, I just, there was an, I have an article in uh, USA Today that's about me, Joanna, and Jimmy, and the Golden Girl, uh, my husband. Um, but I just recently showed her the article, and she was so thrilled. Like, so she's doing great. So overall, the act was good, but I do still want to be honest about what my motivations are. And, yeah, I can say other people don't do it, but also other people are not feeling the absence of a child. Um, uh, I think that certainly played into it. I don't think if I had had children, I would have done it. In fact, I'm sure I wouldn't have. Right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have taken that time away from children. Well, I mean, also just the the pragmatic notion that someone your husband had given panhandling, given him some money, and then fed him, and then started bringing him to your house seemed kind of like a risky decision. <laughs> no. Yeah, that was an odd one on Jimmy's part. Yeah, that was. Um, yes, but he turned. You know, and and he had met them a few times, and they're. Uh, yes, yes, it definitely was, and definitely, and definitely, I I had friends and continue to have friends that are like, you what? <laughs> so, and she loves your husband? Aren't you scared? <laughs> um, but no, there's never been any uh, uh, any any uh, any sort of violent tendencies or any sort of delusional tendencies or anything like that. Right. Uh, uh, did how'd your dog respond? <laughs> oh, that's so. Did you say my dog? I, I saw that yeah. you mentioned something about your dog, but I don't remember you mentioned it in the, the book. The dog goes crazy. The dog goes nuts. Um, yeah, it's like, and I'm sure it is that thing. Dog sense fear, and she is afraid. Yeah, but yeah. The, the dogs have a strong response. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, we've talked about it earlier in, in, in this podcast, but the idea that it, it is a steep path to try to find help for folks with mental illness, particularly people that don't have a lot of resources. And Joanna, particularly after the death of Sonny, gave you guys multiple opportunities um, to just turn it over to somebody else in the system or just kind of move on, but you guys didn't do it. It's very inconvenient, very frustrating. Um, how did the two of you kind of come to the idea we're going to stick with this and year after year keep doing it? Well, um, I, I should say, we never had her live with us. So right, we right. always could have had her. You know, that was the thing that we... I noticed you know, that boundary our, was there pretty firm early on, yeah. Yeah, we were like, we can't do this. But, you know, it was once, um, once Joanna's mother died, there just truly was nobody else. So there wasn't a situation where if we dropped the ball, there was any other safety net. There wasn't any other relative or any. So it was a necessity, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was an obligation that was, you know, it wasn't an obligation that was taken on knowingly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'll also say, it really was, and it's partially what the book was about, it really was so good for me to have a project that was outside my ourselves. 
And I will say my husband, when he is committed to somebody, is so committed to somebody. And there really was never any idea in his mind, I don't believe, that he would drop the ball. We would have figured something out, you know. Um, you know, I kind of, I built it up in the climax to the book. And it was a huge deal of getting her into this place that was amazing. This place, Good Shepherd. Yeah, it sounded like an amazing, I mean, her progress there was, I mean, unexpected, to be honest with you, because so many people, you know, it just it's unusual for people to actually get help. I hate to be, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. depressed about it, but it's... No. There are just so few resources. And you think about from the concept of not only faith communities of any tradition that can are willing to embrace folks with mental illness of any kind because there aren't any easy answers or shortcuts. Right. And that kind and of leaves it up to yeah. those with the love and patience and willingness to do it or left to sort of pick up the ball and do it. I also think that there's... Um, sometimes a feeling among Christians, not true of my parents, though, that if somebody is not grateful that they're not deserving of help, right. or if they're not nice, um, you know, and uh, I, I think that sometimes is a pitfall of faith, you, you know, is like, we'll be better, you know, um, and Joanna certainly challenges that, and but, but like, it was Seeing the women at Good Shepherd, their patience and care and respect and, like, not rushing, you know, all those unconscious things that you do where people who are not in the ruling class, you treat them a little bit differently, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, their manner and behavior was so stripped of that. Um, you know, there was no, like, you know, at one point we're trying to get her or I was trying to get her to sign the papers to go into this wonderful place. And, you know, it's just so frustrating. It's like, do it, do it, do it. what's wrong with you? Um, and, you know, they just had this, this equanimity of, yeah, we understand this. this and, and I think that might not always be the case. Anyway, they were, they were wonderful there at Good Shepherd. Well, did you you feel like you you're on that that path you were talking about um, finding that spiritual element you need for yourself and working to bring happiness with Joanna and other folks? Yeah. So since that, so the Himalayan Institute, um, I'm now I'm, I'm a member of the Zen Center of Los Angeles. I have been for uh, twelve years. I think I'm going to be taking my Jukai vows this year. This is that's where you kind of formally declare yourself as a Zen Buddhist. But um, and and I'm doing that because I, I like being part of the tradition. But I generally think of myself as being spiritually promiscuous, <laughs> and I will not be slut shamed. Um, but you know, there's a you know I know that there can be the new age tendency of oh I try this oh I try this I try this. But um, there can also be a depth in looking and seeking uh, commonality in different sources. So, uh, so I'm a Zen Buddhist, but, uh, you know, but I'm part of a Tibetan Buddhist study group. And there are a couple, uh, there is a Christian mystic. Well, I follow Richard Lohr, who I'm sure you sure. know, at least sure. quite popular. Um, but, like, I love what he's writing. 
Um, and but my I'm the biggest fangirl of um, James Finley, who uh, was a student of Thomas Merton's and actually Thomas Merton's Merton's biographer. Um, and I go and see him every chance I get. I do all you know. I'm and I just find his language, his poetry, using the Christian vernacular. Um, but in a different way, I just love it. Um, so yeah, I, I am very much on the spiritual path. Well, you were just, you mentioned, you know, Richard Rohr and Finley, and you mentioned your, um, the Zen center and, and your, uh, connection to Buddhism. It's like we talked about earlier, uh, truth resonates and the, the labels sort of fall away when, you know, mm. you hear something that's true. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, it's like a vibration. Yeah, it's interesting too. There's not a lot of legitimate, and I'm, I'm using that word sort of in a squishy way. Portrayals of mental illness in the entertainment industry is always over the top. There's a few comedians. I noticed uh, Sarah Silverman wrote a nice thing about your book. Uh, I think of Maria yeah, Bamford yeah. and Jake Wiseman, Jenny Jack. There's a few that come to mind. But it seems like every other ailment's been done to death in television, movies, and stand-up, but there have not been a lot of quality characters written for people with mental struggles. I think that's kind of interesting. I think part of it is one thing you mentioned, the word that you were avoiding is the idea that there is no cure for that, whereas, you know, in a, in a drama or a movie, you can cure something in a couple hours. Or you know. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm working on now? The project that I'm writing a pilot for Paramount Plus um, about mental health. It's a comedy about mental health. Um, and it's called Sylvia's Dead. And basically it's the story of a therapist named Sylvia who dies and six of her patients that form a support group, each suffering from uh, a different challenge. And then they find out that Sylvia isn't really dead. Oh wow! Uh, Tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> where where are you yeah. in that? Where are you in that well, cycle? I just turned in, so I pitched this idea probably a year ago, uh, or maybe not that long ago. Sold it. Uh, uh, this the CBS uh, TV my studio, and then we uh, sold it to Paramount Plus, which basically means. They hire me to write uh, the pilot for it, and then if they like it, they shoot the pilot. If they like the pilot, they make the series. So I am at the phase where I have just last week turned in the pilot to the studio. Excellent. So I will get, yeah, yeah, so I'll get studio notes this Friday, and then we'll send it to the network, and then we'll see. Well, that sounds exciting. Anything else exciting you're working on? Since you said you were on the fast train and it's busy, busy, busy. Busy, busy, busy. Yes, I'm starting a podcast called 50 Words for Snow. And it comes from the idea, you know, the lore that uh, Inuit languages have sure. 50 words for snow. So what I have a Welsh, uh, a woman in Wales, who's my partner. And we are talking to people, uh, native speakers of were languages, uh, words that don't have a direct English translation. Oh, wow, that's um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that sounds like fun. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, Fred yeah. Allen said 
Uh, of course, at the time he was saying Eskimos, just anyway, but had 50 words for snow, but not one for mayonnaise, which I thought was a pretty good. Ah, <laughs> uh, great, great, great. I'll remember that. I'll pull that out. Hey, time listen, time. if you're ever looking for something <laughs> funny, think about Fred Allen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you you sort of touched on this. You, you you feel like you're doing. How are you doing today? You feel like you're doing better today? And uh, are there any tools you suggest people that yeah. are struggling would go to or? Yeah. So I would say you know not to put a percentage on it. You know I would I am I do not feel like I am one hundred percent. I don't feel like I I actually have. I, I, I who, have is? Uh, <laughs> who is? Who is? Who yeah. is? Who is? So um but. Boy, I will tell you the thing that is my lifesaver is meditation practice and just mind training. Um, for me, it happens to come through these Buddhist ideas, but any practice of just throughout the day watching your mind and going, what's it doing now? Don't do it. Don't, it's a Leonard Cohen uh, line that I like. It, um, do not stoop to strategies like this. And I say that to myself throughout the day so many times when I start to want to go into some, like, you know, just like, oh, I can't believe, da, da, da. just like, don't, nope, Maggie, don't stoop to that strategy. Don't do it, don't do it. Um, uh, and now that does not directly help with the looping, but just the practice of becoming comfortable with an open, non-chattering mind um, is what I'm trying to do. That's, that's, that's my goal. Big sky mind to get some air in there, ventilated a bit. <laughs> and that's, that's you know, there's that Christian concept tradition of taking thought, every thought captive and, you know, yes. kind of like you're talking about taking those. You, you mentioned um, in your book a little bit about this, but what kind of, how do you practice meditation? Is there something that has worked for you that uh, you've shared with other people or you just found it too personal and what different things work for different no, people? No. No, no, not at all. I, um, I generally do the, the pattern from the Zen Center is, is a 25-minute period. Um, uh, so I generally do um, 25 minutes every morning, and um, I'll do different sorts of... I won't always do the same practice. Like I won't always do watching my breath. Sometimes I'll do watching my breath. Sometimes I'll do like a sound meditation. Sometimes I'll do meta meditation, which is where you're kind of, you know, imagining taking in somebody suffering and then imagining, you know, sending out kindness. So I'll do different sorts of, or sometimes occasionally I'll do chanting, but I try to do that same set 25 minutes every day. Mm -hmm. Um and that's and that's a priority I, in your day. You make sure you get that done. It is a priority in my day. Yeah, I find it. I've heard a phrase that I like that it's mental hygiene. Um, and and for me, it is. It's like just. It, and it doesn't mean that looping won't appear, <laughs> um, but it means that I'm a little. I, I, I one definition I heard of meditation I really liked is habituation to openness. Um, and I like that of just practicing not clinging in whatever different ways. Um, yeah, that's really, that's really been my godsend. And it sounds like what we almost started out talking about, slowing down is a big part of that, learning yes. to slow down. 
Absolutely. Well, I hope everybody will buy both your books. They're available just about everywhere, or you can get your local bookshops to order them. Uh, before we go, is there anything else you've read or watched recently that just made you laugh out loud? That... Oh, what just made me laugh out loud? Oh, oh, well, I've started watching this new show on HBO, This Way Up, with an Irish comedian. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 what is her name? I know you're talking about. Age. Aisley B or something? Yeah, Aisley B, yeah. Dang, I I just, I love that, I love that humor. I, yes, and I want her to be the lead of my series. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of an addiction kind of thing with mental illness as a subplot there too, so. so. Absolutely, I love, that's the kind of thing I want to write. I love, I love using comedy to deal with these, you know, very real, you know, very deep subjects. Um, my favorite type. Well, when you get the Emmy nomination for Sylvia's Dead, we'll have to have you back on and talk again. <laughs> All right. Keep me near the top of your list once you start winning the awards, and we'll uh, get back together. <laughs> hey, I really have enjoyed talking to you. And like I said, I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed both your books, and I think um, they're, uh, they're missing pieces to a puzzle that people need to read, and there are things in it that I don't see a lot of other places, and your uh, transparency and your willingness to share with other people uh, what's worked for you and how opening your heart to others has kind of filled your heart is something that I think is really inspiring folks. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Greg. And I have set a reminder for Paramount Plus, the series that Maggie's working on. As always, I enjoyed talking to Maggie. And she is a wealth of wisdom and information and entertainment. And I encourage you to check out her books. They're available at Amazon. And it's Maggie Rowe. And hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Well, join me next week when my guest will be Austin Carty, who has written a book about why people, uh, particularly people in, interested in spiritual things, should read. He writes about it from a pastoral standpoint about how reading has enriched his life and enriched the way he interacts with other people. So I hope you'll join me then for the Thinking God podcast where we look for truth wherever we can find it.